It's good to be with you tonight and good to see you here. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter um, 2. Matthew chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 1 and I will read to the end of the chapter. But before I begin, let me say a few uh, words, uh, preliminary remarks to um, prepare us to think about the text before us. Last Sunday evening, we looked at the um, final half of Matthew chapter 1. And one of the things that we noted about Matthew 1, particularly in verse 23, was the uh, difficulty in Isaiah 7.14, the difficulty in Matthew's quotation and understanding that quotation in its context uh, in Isaiah. And so we looked back to Isaiah to understand what it is that Matthew is, um, is saying by this quotation. And I made the case that not only is Matthew suggesting or saying quite clearly that Jesus fulfills Isaiah 7.14, uh, but also he's suggesting that that whole bit of Isaiah, um, really all of Isaiah is fulfilled in Christ, uh, but especially in this, um, that particular frame of reference in Isaiah 7 and 9 and 11, all of these are pictures of that same, uh, the same Christ, the same, um, all of these are fulfilled in him. And so uh, there is a context that is important to help us understand what it is that Matthew is doing. And this evening, as we look to Matthew chapter 2, we're going to see that this whole narrative that really began in verse 18 of chapter 1 and ends at the end of chapter 2 is strung together by fulfillment quotations. We're going to see five instances where Matthew cites some sort of prophetic statement and says that Jesus in some way in his life fulfills these statements. And so that's what we're going to look at and seek to understand within Matthew's unfolding narrative. So, if you would follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read to the end of chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them whether Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they star saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord 
appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he should be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this evening you would come and be among us, that you would send your spirit to illumine our minds and give us understanding of your word to help us to see how all these things that came to pass are indeed consistent with your perfect plan and your will from, uh, that you declared through the prophets in times of old. And so in seeing this, Lord, that we might also see that all that you bring to pass in our lives in and through us is part of your perfect plan and according to your perfect will, that we might in this way trust you, submit to your will and to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, we've read a lengthy passage in Matthew's Gospel, and the reason I've done that is I, I want us to see how all of these narratives are strung together into one coherent, cohesive narrative, really stretching back to uh, chapter 1, verse 18, with what we saw there last Sunday evening. And I mentioned in the introduction that each of these, is, uh, each of these narratives features a fulfillment quotation quotation of some sort or a citation of the Old Testament. And yet these uh, citations, these quotations, just like the one in chapter 1, are difficult. They're not e it's not easy to understand what Matthew is saying when we look back to the Old Testament context. We won't have time to go into detail into every single citation, and so I'll give you some general ideas of what Matthew is doing. But what I want to point out is that Matthew is not simply saying that each Old Testament quotation is a matter of specific prediction. That is, for example, when he quotes from the prophet Hosea in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt shall I call my son, Matthew is not saying that Hosea predicted that the Christ would go down to Egypt. Because in the context, Hosea says, Israel is my firstborn son. Rather, what Matthew is doing, he is showing us that the patterns by which God acted in times of old are the same patterns by which he is acting now. 
And just as God called Israel out of Egypt, so too God called the eternal Son of God out of Egypt. And so there's a, a, a relationship there which makes sense when we understand it in the context of all of Hosea. In Hosea, Hosea frequently moves from, uh, from an individual to the whole of the nation, where individuals represent the whole and goes back and forth in this way. So, for instance, there is a town in Adam, or named Adam in Israel. There was a town at that time named Adam. And Hosea, in chapter 6, says that the town Adam acted like Adam when they transgressed the covenant of the Lord. So you have this back and forth between individuals and the corporate whole, the whole nation in Hosea. And Matthew understands this because he's well taught in the scriptures. He was taught by Jesus himself. And he understands the way that Hosea unfolds as a whole. And so he understands that when Hosea looks forward to uh, a return from exile, he can speak about God saying, out of Egypt will I call my son, and then saying Israel is my firstborn son, and recognize that when God intervenes to save his people, there is a pattern that was first seen in the Exodus. That the pattern of God's salvation is one whereby he calls his people out of that slavery, out of that bondage. And so Jesus, being the one who represents God's people, the final, ultimate representative of God's people, just like Israel went down to Egypt, Matthew is saying, Jesus went down to Egypt, and God called him out of Egypt. So there are predictive prophecies. We'll see one with regard to Micah in the Old Testament, where the prophets simply say something quite uh, straightforward, like that Christ will be born in Bethlehem. Here I'm paraphrasing. But not all prophetic statements work that way. Sometimes they're a bit more complicated. And uh, what we just need to recognize is that uh, we, we don't want to be too quick to say, as some scholars have said, Matthew didn't know what he was talking about. We ought to say, Matthew, I'm quite sure, understands Hosea much better than I do. And so I need to work hard to understand what it is that Hosea is saying. So this is the idea. We'll see that again with his quotation of Jeremiah, where he says that the, the, the killing of all these children in Bethlehem is a fulfillment of a prophecy whereby Jeremiah says, uh, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And once again, in the context, Jeremiah is speaking about Israel going into exile in a passage about the coming of the new covenant. And yet again, what Matthew is saying is that God works according to consistent patterns when he saves his people. And so just like what happened in the exile, when the children of Israel were going into exile, and Jeremiah describes it as though Rachel, uh, the, the wife of, of, of Jacob, is weeping. She's, she's sorrowful as she watches her children go into exile. So too, all of this comes to its ultimate fulfillment when Herod kills all of these children in Bethlehem because of his opposition to Christ. And so the people suffer in this way, and, and there's a correspondence, a relationship between what happened there and what's happening now. 
But here in the context of Jeremiah 31, when we see, when we look, if we look at Jeremiah, what we see is that in the midst of um, this weeping, the whole passage is about joy and restoration and God bringing about the fulfillment of His promises to redeem His people and to bring them into covenant. And the suggestion, if we're careful readers of Scripture and we go back to Jeremiah and we think about the broader context is that if God brought a reversal, was promised a reversal of this sorrow in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, then God will also bring a reversal of this sorrow that we see in this passage here, whereby all of these children are killed. There is great sorrow in that. Nevertheless, God will reverse that sorrow and bring joy. Okay? And so sometimes these quotations, they can be difficult for interpreters. But we need to be very careful, and uh, especially if, you, if you, you read or you hear someone saying, as, as some interpreters have said, Matthew didn't know what he was talking about, or he misquotes, they're wrong, they're not right. And just start with the premise, of course, that God's word is true. And yet, as we saw this morning, think about Mary. She didn't understand the saying, but she sought to discern. She sought to understand it. When things are difficult, things are hard to understand, we need to seek to understand knowing that God's word is true and God's word is right, even when it can be difficult to comprehend what exactly it is saying. So that's kind of a, a gives you a sense of what Matthew is doing. As I said, I'm not going to go into great detail about every single quotation. But I did want to set that stage because I want you to appreciate how difficult some of these quotations can be. Because there is one quotation that is straightforward and very clear. And in the narrative, it shows us how not to respond to God's clear word. So we're picking up the theme that we saw this morning of, uh, of responding to God's word. And I've titled this, Wise Men, Foolish Men, and the Unbreakable Will of God. Because throughout this whole narrative, as it unfolds, we see those who are wise because they respond rightly to God's word. And we're some, in some ways surprised by who those people are. And we see those who are fools because they reject God's word or they stand opposed to God's word. Do you see? And that's what we're going to look at then as we think about these quotations. And, and that's why I want you to appreciate the difficulty of some of them. Because the one that's most straightforward that the scribes and Pharisees, the scribes and the chief priests fully understand, does not have the appropriate effect. They don't respond appropriately, that is, to that word. So in this first narrative, what we see is that wise men come from the east, and they're, they're searching for the Christ. They're searching for the one who is born king of the Jews. This is really shocking. Why are, why are wise men from the area of Babylon and Assyria coming to find the Christ? What on earth would have drawn them to come and see where this child was born? They're not Israelites. They're not even worshipers of God. They're from a pagan nation. They're probably, uh, wise men translates uh, magi, they're probably astrologers, people who practiced astrology. But in the course of things, they see a star, and they recognize that this is a sign that a king has been born in the land of Israel. Now, this may go back to Numbers chapter 24. There we see a prophet also from the east who also was not a worshiper of the one true God. And he gets hired by, um, 
by the king of Midian, a man named Balak. And this prophet's name is Balaam. And you know this story about the talking donkey, right? And how Balaam is quite a fool. And Balak hires him to pronounce a curse against Israel, but God will not let him do it. And instead, God gives this pagan prophet true prophecies about Israel, about what will happen in the days ahead. And in Numbers chapter 24, in his third, excuse me, his fourth and final oracle, Balaam says this in verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the head, the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheth. And he goes on to describe the con- this conquering king. But notice he describes him as a star and, and a scepter. That this is a ruler who will come out of, who will rise out of, out of Israel. And so Balaam looks ahead and sees this king who will conquer those nations who are the enemies of God. And these men, these wise men from the east, see this star and they recognize this is the fulfillment of our expectation. Maybe during the Babylonian exile of Israel, they came into possession of some of Israel's scriptures and and being interested in those had read these things and had been looking for those things. We don't know all the details of what prompted them, but surprisingly, they come to seek him and not just to find him, but they come to become worshipers of the one true God. That is, they come to worship the Christ who has been born. This is quite shocking, especially when we consider it in contrast to what we see from those who are living in Judea. Herod the king, when when they come and ask him, where is the one born a king of the Jews? He responds defensively. He responds like one who does not want to lose his throne. And he knows about the prophecies. He knows about an expectation that the Christ would come because he knows well enough to summon the chief priests and the scribes. And we're told that he's troubled and all Jerusalem with him. They're not receiving this word with gladness. They're not looking for the star. They're not taking note of it and saying, this is the fulfillment of of an ancient prophecy. But they're troubled. Herod, we understand why he's troubled. He's afraid he's going to lose his throne. But why are the people of Jerusalem also troubled? Most likely, they see in this expectation a threat to their peace and security. That is, that they're going to somehow incur the wrath of the Romans if they start celebrating the birth of a king. And the Romans will try to put down this rebellion. Other men had arisen in the the course of time who who had claimed to be the Christ. They had led violent revolutions, and they, they never ended well. They always ended very poorly at the hands of the Romans. And so there's perhaps fear here. Matthew doesn't tell us. What he is showing us is that Jerusalem from this very early day, and this will unfold across Matthew's gospel, Jerusalem, the city that should have accepted Christ, stands opposed to him. Ultimately, this will culminate in Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem when he says, how often I would have gathered you to myself as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Jerusalem stands opposed even from his birth. They're foolish men. And even the chief priests and the scribes, they quote this passage from Micah 5 too. Let me turn over there, and you can turn there with me, or you can listen as I read. But they quote this passage from Micah, the the prophet who says this in chapter 5, verse 2 and following. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now I suggest to you that when these men quoted this passage of Micah, they were familiar with all of Micah, and it brought to mind all of their uh, thoughts about the prophet Micah. I heard one uh, scholar explain this in a sermon where if he were to say to you, um, you must be born again, you might immediately say, well, that's from John 3. And he said, if I were to ask you, uh, well, what's going on in John 3? You'd say, well, Jesus is sitting down with Nicodemus and they're having a conversation about the new birth and Jesus is explaining it. You see, you know, you're familiar with these texts and, and it calls to mind more than just the quotation. So here, the whole thing is about a ruler in the quotation, but this ruler is going to be great, and he's going to shepherd Israel. And he's going, to, he's going to be the leader that they belonged for, and he's going to restore the kingdom all the way to the ends of the earth. And this is a very clear prediction. It's very explicit. And what would you think the scribes and the chief priests would do? Okay, Herod, you asked us a question we'd like to know. Why did you ask that question? Why are you concerned whether Christ will be born? And finding out, perhaps, that the that the wise men who came from the east are saying that he has been born. They would want to come with those wise men and offer worship. But they don't. They seem not to care. Their response is nothing. And then Herod secretly summons the wise men again, and he pretends to have interest. He wants to come and worship with them, he says. And so he sends them to Bethlehem and says, Go and search diligently for the child when you've found him. Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. But he's a liar. And so he's secretly planning to kill this child to preserve his reign. He stands opposed to the will of God. Will it work? It will not. For we cannot stand against the Lord and hope to win. And that's why Herod and these scribes and these chief priests who don't seem to care are foolish men. They don't respond appropriately to the word of the Lord. The wise men do, and we'll see them do it again. For as they go, they bring you, you're familiar with the story, they bring the gifts, they bring the gold and the, the incense and the myrrh, and they, they give Jesus gifts that are fitting for a king, and they fall down and they worship him, and they rejoice with great joy to find him. And then the Lord warns them in a dream not to return to Herod, and they depart and go another way to their own country. Now, we're going to see that this has uh, effects, this has ramifications that are dire, that are devastating, because Herod's going to realize that he's been tricked. But before that happens, the Lord intervenes. Again, just as he warned the wise men in a dream, now he intervenes to warn Joseph in a dream. So when they had departed, we read in verse 13, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, Flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Why? God knows all that's about to happen. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So God intervenes and is going to frustrate the plans of this wicked king. 
we see Joseph, one who is wise, who responds to this word from the Lord with immediate obedience. He does not wait till morning. He rises, he takes the child and his mother by night, which would have been a dangerous journey. He could have encountered bandits and brigands on the way to Egypt, and yet he obeys right away, and they go to Egypt. This is what the Lord said. And Joseph, as we saw last week, we're seeing again, is one who, just like Mary, as we saw this morning, is responsive to the word of the Lord, is submissive to the word of the Lord, is willing to do whatever it is that God tells him to do. This is the faithful response of a wise person when the Lord speaks to him through his holy word. And we can learn from it as well. It was certainly a difficult thing to do. It challenged him to take risks, to, uh, to brook danger. And yet, we can trust that when the Lord commands us to do something, he'll supply for us all that we need to obey him. He doesn't leave us on our own, but he graciously provides for us so that we might obey his word. So this is a wise response to God's word. And here then we find in the conclusion of that what I spoke about from Hosea chapter 11, that all of this is to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The Lord ordained that his son should go down to Egypt so that he would be seen to be one who is like Israel, who is their representative, who is doing the things that Israel failed to do. And thereby showing us through a series of patterns that will unfold across Matthew, that he is, also, he is our substitute. Those who are the true Israel, using Paul's language from Romans, the true Israel, those who have faith. We look to Christ who is our representative, who went before us, who is our righteousness, who sacrificed himself for us. All of this relies on us understanding that he stands in our place. That's what Matthew is doing with this passage from Hosea pointing to the representative role of, the, of Christ. that He is the one who represents us before the Lord. So out of Egypt I called my son, the Lord said. And this now is fulfilled. So Herod responds by doing what? When he realizes that he's been tricked by the wise men, he becomes furious. And he sends and he kills all the male children in Bethlehem. It was a small town. This wouldn't have registered in the daily news. Back then, nobody would have said, well, we have a tyrant governor, let's get rid of him. They didn't have that kind of power. Maybe 20 children were killed in this small town of Bethlehem. Not something that historians would have recorded. Yet this was a a great and wicked thing that he did, a great tragedy for this people. And what he's doing is trying to cover his bases, clearly. When he ascertained when the star rose, the, the wise men would have said, well, about two years ago, and it would have taken them a long time to make their journey. It didn't mean Jesus was two years old by this time. The star could have risen two years before his birth. It simply means that in that span of time, somewhere between zero and two years old, that's the range of time that he knows that that child, that's, that's his age. So to cover his bases, he says, well, kill them all. We see again the foolishness of a wicked king who stands opposed to the will of the Lord. And yet, in God's purposes, this too is part of his good plan. Let me turn back to Jeremiah 31, briefly where he quotes from. 
because I, I want to read the quotation, but I also want to read the verse that comes right after it. This whole context is one, in, in your Bible you might have a subheading like this, the Lord will turn mourning to joy. And that's the subtext of it all. He says in verse 15 then, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And here Jeremiah is talking about the children going into exile. But verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. If there's a fulfillment of verse 15, there's a fulfillment of verse 16. What I'm saying is this. This is a, when we think about this being in part of the purpose and plan of God, it's hard to understand. How could God will that this should happen? And yet our sovereign God has power even over death. And so in his plan, the end of what he's willing is not one that ends in tragedy, but it ends in redemption, it ends in restoration, it ends with a gracious end for his people, even for the children who went to death. And the reason that we know that to be true is because the one child that God spared from death in this account he did not spare so that he wouldn't suffer death at all. But he spared, them so that, spared him so that he could grow to become a man who would suffer a death for us all. Do you see? He did not preserve him from death to preserve him from death altogether. He preserved him from death so that he might fulfill the will of the Lord. For it was the will of the Lord to crush him, Isaiah tells us. He would make himself an offering. So he did. So ultimately, when we think about this text, we need to think about it in that larger context and understand that there is a gracious word at the end of this tragedy. And that gracious word applies even to these children who lost their lives and suffered that tragedy and to their parents who would see the day when God would conquer the grave and conquer death and the day that we look forward to still when God will bring an end to death forever and ever for His people. If there's a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31.15, then there's also a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31.16. So Herod dies. He is a fool. He can't defeat the will of the Lord. And his death comes. And you see, for all that he did to try and preserve his reign, not understanding the will of the Lord, it was not long before he's in the grave and all of his plans come to nothing. But lo the Lord's plans cannot fail. And so he comes to Joseph again and he speaks to him in a dream and again says, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. And Joseph, again demonstrating his wisdom, obeys the word of the Lord and does exactly what the Lord would have him do. So he rises, he goes to Israel, but he hears news that Herod's son is reigning in his place, Archelaus. So he's fearful, understandably so. Archelaus's father tried to kill his son and so killed a bunch of children. Would Archelaus do the same thing? Now Herod and then Archelaus after him only reigned over Judea. And so the Lord comes again and speaks again to Joseph 
And he tells him, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Judea. No, go to Galilee, to a town called Nazareth. So, in this backwood place outside of Herod's jurisdiction, outside of Archelaus's jurisdiction, he goes and he raises this child in a no-name town. And this too, we're told by Matthew, was to fulfill the will of the Lord, which he spoke by the prophets, that he should be called a Nazarene. Now this final statement is probably the most, or perhaps the most difficult of all, that he should be called a Nazarene. Because there's no Old Testament text that says he shall be called a Nazarene. But we need to look very carefully and closely at Matthew's wording here. Notice in verse 23 what he says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And I want to call your attention specifically to two things, the plural prophets and the word that. The plural prophets suggest that Matthew is summarizing many things that were consistent messages that the prophets, across all of the prophetic writings, said concerning Christ. And the word that, in this context, can introduce a kind of summary paraphrase. If I were to say to you something like this, the prophets said that the Christ would suffer and die and rise again. Well, you're not going to find a particular sentence that says, the Christ, when he comes, will suffer and die and rise again. But the prophets do say that, if I can paraphrase in summary form. In fact, that's what Jesus does throughout his ministry when he predicts his passion. He paraphrases in summary form that it was written in the scriptures that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and rise. This is, I think, what Matthew is doing here. He's introducing this way of speaking in paraphrase at this early time. And so he speaks of what the prophets as a whole have said about the Christ that, in paraphrase, he will be called a Nazarene. Well, where do they say this? Well, I think if I could summarize several different things that we see in the prophetic writings, we'll see. I'll put them under two headings. The first is the idea that the light of Christ would first shine in Galilee. You see that in Isaiah chapter 9. We read it this morning. In Isaiah chapter 9, when we read that together, where we read that um, if you go back to chapter 8, in fact... Galilee is being described as a place in deep darkness. 22 of chapter 8. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be thrust into the thick darkness. But then chapter 9 takes up. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And later in Matthew, we'll see that when Jesus comes preaching in Galilee, we're told this is being fulfilled now. But notice Isaiah 9 is about the child being born. So I suggest to you that it's also being fulfilled in the fact that this child is sent to grow up in this no-name place of Nazareth. The other heading that I can put these, summarize these prophetic statements under is that of uh, the suffering and humility of the Christ. The Christ would be one who suffers and would be one who is humble. We can see this in Psalm 22, for instance, where the psalmist, where David writes about the suffering and death of the Christ. 
how they cast lots for his garments and how they, 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 they scorn him and they mock him. We can see this in Zechariah, in chapters 9 through 14, where uh, the Lord says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And he speaks about how the shepherd is opposed. Or earlier, he speaks about how the Christ will come into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey. You know that text. And you can see it again, probably most clearly in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, where we see a picture of the suffering of Christ. He grew up before us like a tender shoot. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look at him. He's a man of humility, and he suffers. He suffers the stripes of men. He's scourged and he's whipped. All of these things are what I think Matthew is summarizing when he says, he shall be called a Nazarene. It's like saying he'll be called a redneck. He'll be thought of as nobody. Nobody will look at him and say, this is a great man. He's just someone from Nazareth. You can see that then in John's gospel where Nathaniel says about him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? The other disciples say, come and see. Come and see. Well, this is the idea here that's unfolding before us then in Matthew chapter 2. Going back all the way to chapter 1. is one where we have God's purposes being fulfilled even though wicked and foolish men stand against it. Even though the people we would expect to be most interested in what's happening don't really care. But there are people who surprise us. People like Joseph. Not a high and mighty man, just a carpenter. People like these wise men from the East. And they respond to the, the word of the Lord with humble faith, seeking to worship God through Christ, seeking to obey the will of the Lord as He declares to them through His word. And in so doing, in all of this as it unfolds, we see that God's purposes are being fulfilled, that nothing can stop Him from doing all that He pleases. And so in that, we ought to be encouraged. We ought to be encouraged that God will indeed also fulfill all of His purposes, all of His promises that He's made to us. Promises of eternal life. Promises of a kingdom that will last forever. Promises that death will someday come to an end. And that God will cause us to live forever, eternally, in His kingdom forever. Not as spirits, but as resurrected people with bodies under the reign and rule of His Christ forever and ever and ever. These promises are yet to be realized, yet to be fulfilled, but they are sure. For God has shown us again and again, and He's shown us here in this text, that when He speaks, His word is true. Not just in the sense that He speaks accurately, but in the sense that He does all that he says he will do. and No one can thwart his will. But we should be warned as well that it is a tragic thing to oppose the word of the Lord. As we saw with Herod, he went to his eternal reward. He stood opposed to it. and He has his condemnation. And the chief priests and the scribes, their opposition has not yet been completed in Matthew, but we will see it. It began with apathy, they did not care. It would fully flower when they crucified the Lord of glory. There's a great tragedy in all that. So we must beware. Do not, do not ignore the word of the Lord. And do not rebel against it. Nevertheless, 
we ought to end again with that same word that I just spoke. For God's final word is never a word of judgment. His final word to us is a word of grace. So be reminded, God's purposes are sure. He will fulfill all of his promises to us because he sent his son. He who did not spare his son, how will he not also with him give us all things? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, teach us to trust, teach us to live by faith. Even when we face trying times, even when we face difficulties as we saw Uh, with Joseph, for instance, and the difficulties that he faced and the threats that he faced, threats that um, were ultimately directed at our Lord, who you sent to be our Savior. And yet, he trusted you, and he endured, and he remained faithful. Lord, make us faithful in this same way. Make us those who endure trials, who endure suffering, who face whatever may come, knowing that ultimately you're in control of it all, that you will fulfill all your good purposes for us. Increase our faith, O Lord, that we might live lives that are godly and faithful, and uh, that we might be servants in this world, calling others to embrace that same faith by which we are saved. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.